We took a small break last Sunday with Resurrection Sunday from our study in Corinthians, but we're going to pick up where we left off last. And let me remind you as we do what we've been learning along the way. I think the main thing that I'm taking away as we go through this letter is the reality that the Corinthian church is going through a bit of an identity crisis. On one hand, they profess a, a faith in Christ and, and a devotion to, to follow Him. But on the other hand, they seem to have a, a firm grip on the things of this world. There's this building tension as we go through this letter. The, the image that I have in my mind is kind of uh, on a trapeze bar where they've got one in one hand and one in the other. <laughs> and they're just hanging there. And the tension's building because they know eventually they've got to let go of one. And whichever one they let go of, they swing in the opposite direction. And they're caught between having their hand in the best of both worlds from their perspective. They're using their knowledge to justify their compromise. Instead of being set apart, they're trying to find ways to to fit in. They don't want their life to be interrupted by their faith. And at the heart of the issue is an issue of, of pride. Because they're more concerned about what's right for me than what's best for us and that spiritual growth has now been stunted because anytime selfishness rules our faith remains immature it just can't grow and that's the place where we find the corinthian church instead of being built up in love they're really being divided by pride and so Paul speaks into this reality and last time we talked together we we looked at how he gave his own life as an example of what he had given up in his rights for the good of others. He wanted to be a person of influence just like they did, but he wanted to do it in a way that honored God. He wanted to live for the sake of the gospel. In other words, he didn't want disobedience to disqualify him from the abundant life that God has promised. In our passage this morning, Paul's going to take that same thought and move from his own personal life to now the testimony of Scripture to help validate his point. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 1, chapter 10, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The first thing I want you to notice here is the connection that Paul makes between the Old Testament saints and the New Testament church. From the nation of Israel to what is primarily a Gentile church in Corinth. And he's saying from God's perspective, we're all one family. The family of God. And so, just like we would learn from our, our relatives, our, our parents, our grandparents, our, our blood relatives, he says, we have spiritual ancestors as well. Our fathers who went before us and and just as we learn from our relatives we learn from their lives as well and like all our relatives we we all have something in common we we share something uh, in common with one another and he explains that look at verse one again for I do not want you to be unaware brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to go through those first two verses and circle every time you see all. 
It says we were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What he's referring to here is the reality of what happened in the Old Testament when the people of God were led by that cloud by day, the fire by night, how God allowed them to pass through the Red Sea on dry land. He wanted them to, to understand that all of God's people were, were guided and protected by his mercy and grace. Now look at verse 3 again, circle the alls. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all ate the same spiritual drink. And then he makes a connection between that rock in the desert from which water sprang forth, and he said that rock was Christ. I believe what Paul is doing here is, is trying to make the connection with what we have in common with those who've gone before us. And that connection is, is a covenant relationship with God. Their acceptance of God's provision in the desert is based on the same faith as our acceptance of God's provision through Jesus Christ. That's what we have in common. And that's why he says that the, the manna they ate was more than just bread. It was spiritual food. And the water they drank was more than just water. It was spiritual water. In fact, it would point to something yet future that would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In much the same way, you and I, we took communion this morning. That's much more than a piece of a cracker and a cup of juice. It's spiritual food. Why? Because it represents a covenant relationship, a, a trust in God's faithful provision through Jesus Christ. That covenant relationship, by grace through faith, is what we have in common with all of our spiritual ancestors. In that sense, we've all been invited to share in that trusting relationship with God through faith. But look at verse 5, because now we have a dramatic shift. Nevertheless, with, encircle it, most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Despite the fact that all of our spiritual ancestors understood and experienced the loving provision of God's mercy and grace, most of them were unfaithful. In fact... Out of the millions of people that formed the nation of Israel, there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who entered into the promised land. Out of millions. That's why all were under God's provision and guidance, but most were not faithful. They were not faithful because ultimately of a divided loyalty. And, and Paul's going to unpack this so this will become crystal clear as we walk through the remainder of the passage. But it's very important that we understand this on the front end. And, and, and so because of that, let me compare it to a marriage covenant. A marriage covenant is a commitment between a husband and a wife for a lifetime of love together. And, and when we make that commitment, it's a promise. And so it wouldn't make any sense at all to any of us for me to stand up here and tell you how much I love my wife while having an affair with another woman. 
You see, my covenant promise, that covenant relationship excludes all others. And so even because of that promise, I have no desire for any other because I have everything within the promise of that relationship that God has given me in my marriage to my wife. You see, the Corinthians want both. And so Paul is going to turn to this history of a divided love within the people of Israel, and he's going to explain to them the consequences of that divided love. They were claiming to have a love for God, but a firm grip on the things of the world. Remember, they didn't want to be set apart. They wanted to fit in. They didn't want their life to be inconvenienced by their faith. They wanted the best of both worlds. And Paul is going to help them understand that a divided loyalty is complete disobedience. A divided loyalty is complete disobedience. Look at how he continues as he warns them of the consequences by giving a list of examples beginning in verse 6. He says, now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. And do not be idolaters, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, let these things, these things happened to them as an example And they are written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. It's it's important to understand, as as Paul begins to list out these examples, this is not like a Sunday school flannel board where he kind of throws up, does everybody remember the story of Noah? This is not what he's doing. He's very purposefully going in to pick out very specific examples that relate directly to the Corinthian church. The first example he gives is directly related to them because it has to do with idolatry. He's referring to a time when the people of God had been with Moses as he had verbally given them the covenant. The, the Ten Commandments, you re- remember that. And there were a list of, of other ordinances and things that he walked through with the people of God. They had heard this from Moses as their leader as he spoke on behalf of God. And they said, we believe and we agree. In fact, if you would turn to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. Exodus is one of those that probably is in the new part of your Bible there on the far left. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. This is after having explained this uh, Ten Commandments, the, the aspects of this covenant relationship with God. This is what they said. Then Moses came and recounted to all the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered in one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, as we think back to that and we consider the Ten Commandments specifically, what was commandment number one? No other gods before. Just flip back. Let's look at it together. 
Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we all know what it is, but let's read these verses to see how specific and detailed God is as he speaks through Moses to the nation of Israel. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And listen to how I explains. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, in the water or underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I think he's really clear here. Do you agree? They've heard this. They've agreed to this relationship with God through this covenant promise. Now turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Moses, having visited with God and given them these commandments, has now gone back up to the mountain. He's taking a little longer than they think he should. So look what happens in verse, chapter 32, verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we, don't, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off gold rings and uh, uh, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears, of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off their gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a, a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early and offered the burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And here's our verse from Corinthians. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Go back to Corinthians and see. That's the context. They sat down to eat and drink. They rose up to play. Do you see what's happening here? It is a divided love. They sat down to eat and drink to celebrate a festival to, to worship the Lord God, and then they rose up to play, to fulfill their fleshly desires. To put it another way, they went to church that morning and then partied long and hard that night. That was a divided love. It was the best of both worlds. But that divided love is a complete disobedience. And it will come with consequences. And Paul wants the Corinthians to understand what that looks like. And so in the next example, he talks about immorality. So if you're in Corinthians again, verse 8, look at what he says. Now let us, not, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Paul is referring to a time when the Israelites broke that promise to be set apart as God's people and began to intermarry with the cultures that surrounded them. This specifically has to do with Balaam and the Moabites. You remember that? The king of Moab was fearful of this growing nation of Israel, and so he hired Balaam to bring a curse on the nation of Israel. Well, 
God interrupted him in miraculous ways, wouldn't let that happen. So on his way out of town, Balaam kind of whispered into King Moab's uh, ear and said, hey, if you'll just convince the Israelite men to come over and intermarry with your women and then involve them in that worship experience of pagan gods, God's judgment will come and you don't need my curse at all. And he was exactly right. Through marriage, they were drawn into this pagan worship experience. And instead of animal sacrifice, as was the custom of the Israelites, their pagan worship system involved temple prostitution. That was their worship experience. And the Israelites justified their ability to participate in this worship experience because of an allegiance to the one true God. In other words, they could have both, just so long as God was number one. Like the Corinthians, they used their knowledge to justify their compromise. As a result, God's judgment came, and that's what he's referring to. 23,000 Israelites died in one day. Why? Because a divided loyalty is complete disobedience. Their unrepentant immorality was met with God's judgment. And we need to understand that that judgment was a call to repentance. He's a jealous God. And he doesn't want to share your love with things that bring destruction in your life. And so he calls you to live exclusively to him. Because that's what's best for you. And so Paul goes on to give another example of, of what happens when hearts grow hard and when people have a hard heart they tend to put God to the test and that's what he speaks to next he says nor let us try the Lord as some did and were destroyed by serpents here Paul is looking back to a time when the Israelites were in the wilderness and during this time we know that that God was providing everything that they needed that bread that came from heaven manna and the water that came from the rock miraculously they had everything that they needed for life and sustenance in a very harsh environment of the desert. In fact, if he were to remove his hand, they would have certainly died. But instead of being thankful for God's provision, they complained. In fact, they went as far as to say, you know what? We would be better off in slavery in Egypt because there's better food there than being here in the wilderness and having to trust in what you're giving us. That's what they said. That was their complaint. When I hear this, the image that comes to my mind is, is, a, is a toddler with a temper tantrum. This isn't fair. I don't like what you're giving us. I want something better. That's what it is. They're grumbling and complaining. Here's why they were frustrated. They were on their way to the promised land, and they came to a, a nation of Edom. They went to the king of Edom and said, we want to pass through your land. This is where we're going uh, to the north. And they said, no, we're not going to let you. They forbid them from going through the land of Edom. And so as a result, they had to take a southern detour, passing around Edom and then back up north. And I would admit to you that that probably was a pretty big disappointment. I mean, life in the desert wasn't easy, but God was faithful to lead and guide them. They were frustrated. Because that detour was unsatisfying. They believed they 
deserved something better. They wanted a relationship with God without hardship or difficulty. They wanted it to always be easy. Their testing God was a threat to go back to Egypt. Either you improve the menu and the, or, and the travel arrangements, or we're out of here. As a result, the desert snakes came alive. That's how so many died that day. Struck the people and they died because of the poison. Now, I think they were wanting their own way, and so God gave it to them. He lifted his hand of protection, and he gave them the experience of what life is like when he's not protecting them. And they saw that it leads to destruction. And this is a warning to the Corinthians because they are acting in a very same way. Their prideful ambition has overruled their humble gratitude. So Paul turns to one final example for those who continue to grumble and complain. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here Paul is talking to a time when the Israelites expressed their frustration with God by complaining about Moses as their leader. It's the same basic argument. They basically said, we would rather be in Egypt in slavery than following this leader, Moses, who you asked us to follow. Reminds me of Adam's response to God in the garden when he confronted him about what was going on. And what did he say? It's the woman who you gave me that caused this mess. You see, the Israelites are doing the same thing. Their complaint against Moses and his leadership is ultimately blaming God who appointed him to that role. Once again, it's pride at the core of the issue. Because essentially what they're saying is, if this were up to me, we wouldn't be having all these troubles. What they want is to be in charge. They want to be in control. You'll notice that... uh, We've made this point several times that the Corinthians in their letter to Paul did not write to ask him questions about what they were struggling or wanting to get some guidance on. They wrote him with decisions made wanting his validation. They weren't asking asking questions. They were giving him answers that they expected him to validate. And they were justifying those decisions based on their superior knowledge. We know what we can do because we know better. We want to be in charge. And Paul says very clearly, destruction awaits those who go their own way. So Paul closes this history lesson in verse 11 by helping them understand that these things were written for a purpose. Look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written, notice, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's Paul's point for them to understand that as an apostle, he's just as as liable to temptation and trials, just as they are. He's not exempt. These were written for our instruction to help us understand what it means to be faithful, to, to not live in a divided loyalty in our worship and following God. And then in the last verse, he goes on to explain essentially if the person it's the person who's most convinced they are right who's probably wrong 
It's the one with the biggest ego that has the hardest fall. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Look at how he continues in verse 13. No temptation has come upon you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may endure it. The Greek word that we use and translate into temptation can mean either temptations or trials. I don't think we need to argue about the difference because I think it can apply to both. I believe both are in the, so- in the sovereign control of God's hand. And he can use both temptations or trials to accomplish a good purpose in our lives if we put our trust in him. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, and by, by virtue of us reading this this morning, he's reminding us, God is faithful even when we are not. God is faithful even when we are not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the world can be fickle, right? It can promise you one thing, and the next minute it'll reject you just as soon as it accepted you. And for that matter, we can be fickle. We can stand strong in our faith in one minute and then crumble in doubt in the very next. At least that's true for me. Maybe I'm the exception. But not God. He is faithful. His promises are true. This verse serves in this context as both a warning and a message of hope. The warning is against a life of a divided love. The best of both worlds, hanging on between the two. It's a warning against justifying compromise. But in the message of that, in in the middle of that is this message of hope that says if you will let go of those things and put your trust wholly and completely in God alone, he is faithful. He is true. It's the heart of David in Psalm 62, one of my favorite passages. He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in him, we will not be greatly shaken. When we turn our hearts toward God, he will not turn away. He is faithful. When we trust in him, we will find that he will fulfill his promises to us. There is no trial or temptation in which God cannot carry you through. Now, I want to make sure we understand this passage in its context because he speaks here about this way of escape. And I want us to make sure that we don't misinterpret that and see the way of escape like a trap door, that all of a sudden we're dropped out of difficult circumstances and voila, everything's easy again. That's not the way of escape he's talking about. In fact, he even says the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, the way of escape is the way away from the path of compromise and towards a path of faithfulness. As God is faithful to you, you see that he fulfills his promises as you trust in him. It's manna while you're in the desert. It's guidance when you have to take a detour in life. He doesn't promise to take away the difficulty, but he does promise to carry you through so that you are able to endure it. The key is 
Do you trust him? Do you have him with both hands? The message of hope is that there is nothing outside of the ability of God's hand to redeem. He is faithful, and his promises are true. Now, as I thought about this, one of the things that really struck me was this idea of escape. Because if we're honest with ourselves, when any of us are in a difficult situation, we all want a way out. Can we just agree to that? Nobody's a masochist here that just wants to be in a difficult place so they can feel pain. Fair enough? We all want an escape. The question is, what is your way of escape? Where do you turn? To your own way or trusting God? So let's just think about that together, and I'm going to ask you to be honest in your heart, and and I'm going to commit to you that I'll be honest in mine. Because as I thought through this, I want you to know some of the things that we'll talk through are things that I have personal experience with. And my guess is they will relate to you as well. So let's just think through what it looks like to find a way of escape. Because I want to be faithful just like you. One of the things that I think is common for us, the place that where we need to be careful, is to look to pleasure as a way of escape. And let's agree that it doesn't have to be something bad. It can be good stuff. It can be hobbies. It can be shopping. It can be travel. None of those things in and of themselves are bad things. The key here is, are they a way of escape to keep you from turning and putting your trust wholly and completely in God alone? Maybe I'm having trouble with my marriage, and so I'll decide to go play golf that day instead. Instead of going home to work through the things that I know I need to deal with in my relationship with my spouse. I don't want to deal with issues in my heart, so I might escape to, to a movie or to video games. Th- those things aren't bad things unless they are an escape away from trusting in God. Pleasure can be escape, and it doesn't have to be illicit, but if we're not being honest with ourselves, it can become that. I feel so compelled to speak to this issue. I believe that pornography is one of the very most common ways of escape that exists in our world today. I see it, hear it all the time. Young and old alike. And we justify that compromise by comparing it to the alternative. We say, well, at least we're not sexually involved with somebody, so it can't be that bad. I mean, these are natural and normal desires, right? No, that's not right. It's not right. Because here's the key. This passage is about God's faithfulness. He will provide a way of escape. And so we just need to be honest and ask ourselves, is this what it looks like? Is that the way of escape that he intends? Maybe we escape through denial or blame. It's really not my fault that I'm in this hard place. (laughs) If my marriage was better, this wouldn't be an issue. If my parents weren't so hard on me, if they just get off my back, I wouldn't be so rebellious. If my job wasn't stressful, this wouldn't be a problem. And so we escape. Maybe a drink or two just in order to kind of numb the pain. Maybe we escape to isolation in order to avoid authentic community. Maybe we escape from 
peer pressure by just going along with the crowd. It's a much easier route. And we could go on and on and on thinking about the ways of escape that we all know. In fact, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're a culture of escape artists. (laughs) But I want to encourage us as we look at our passage this morning that if we trust in the Lord, He is faithful and He will provide a way. There is no situation that you will ever encounter that is outside the boundaries of God's redemptive hand. He is faithful. And if we trust in him, he will provide a way. It may be manna in the desert. It may be guidance through a detour in life that you didn't see coming. But the message of hope is that there is nothing outside of God's sovereign control. God is faithful. And he will never, ever allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able, but in everything, he will provide a way of escape so that you may stand up under it. Here's my encouragement to you. Run to Jesus. He's your way of escape. Grab hold with both arms. Let go of the things that so easily entangle you. And fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him, despised the shame, endured the cross, and is seated at the right hand of God. Because God is faithful, and his promises are true. And if you will put your trust in him, you'll find that that is true in your life as well. Let's pray together. Father, we need to hear this promise I know that there are people in difficult places wondering how they might be able to endure. And I ask that because of what you've communicated in your word this morning, that there would be something within inside of them that lets go of what they hold so tightly to and grasp fully and completely trusting in you with both hands that they would find that you are faithful, that your promises are true, that you will never allow us to be in a situation that is beyond that which we can endure. Father, help us to, to run to you, to run to your people, to cling to your promises and find that you are faithful, that your promises are true. Father, thank you for that gift of your word to instruct us, to remind us, because we're forgetful. And boy, we have a lot of options of things that we can escape to in our world today. But I pray that this morning, that the very heart of the people here in this room, including me, is a deep conviction that we can run to you and find you faithful. We pray this in your name. Amen.